Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, Show Me the Money. The date, May 2022, and my name is Bell Avis. Quote, I love money. I love everything about it. I bought some pretty good stuff. Got me a $300 pair of socks. Got a fur sink, an electric dog polisher, a gasoline-powered turtleneck sweater. And of course, I bought some dumb stuff too. Unquote. Steve Martin. Quote, When I was young, I thought that money was the most important thing in life. Now that I am old, I know that it is. Unquote. Oscar Wilde. Quote, I've been rich and I've been poor. And believe me, rich is better. Unquote. Beatrice Kaufman. And finally, Rod Tidwell from the movie Jerry Maguire. Show me the money. In Cameron Crowe's Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise's titular sports agent begins as a grasping, vacuous mercenary willing to send one of his hockey-playing clients back out onto the ice despite suffering repeated head injuries. In the middle of the movie, he has an epiphany in which he regrets the worldly foible of money and instead embraces a higher plane of supposed morality. But this being a more interesting movie than the usual liberal tripe about the evils of money, such as, I don't know, regarding Henry, Jerry later realizes that rejecting the cash factor was a mistake. Later, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s Rod Tidwell, a business major himself, provides a new manifesto, Show Me the Money. The film's arc shows Jerry's growth as a human being. He learns that love involves sacrifice and realizes the value of true friendship with Tidwell, which other characters also learn. But the movie does not end with the iconic You Had Me at Hello, in which Jerry gets the girl. It ends only after Tidwell receives an $11 million four-year contract to play wide receiver in the NFL, of which Jerry, as his agent, gets a sweet percentage. Only then do Jerry, his wife, and his adopted son walk into the sunset. Simple rule, dear listener. Whenever a politician or anyone really explains something in purely altruistic terms, something that is for the people, it is almost always about the money. Now, in, in history, we have seen many historical motivations. Power is probably the chief among them, though the money comes from that as well. And religious zeal, well, that's up there, of course. Had Jesus lived, one would think, or hope, he would have been circumspect about selling his memoirs to, I don't know, let's say, Caesar Augustus's buddy, Mycenaeus, patron of Virgil. Perhaps love or passion would be up there among the prominent things that make us do what we do. I am currently reading the great classicist Adrian Goldsworthy's Antony and Cleopatra, one of the few historical tales involving a near-equally pairing of a powerful man and a powerful woman. But one of the reasons this affair is celebrated is its rarity. Much suggests that sexual desire, maybe even love, was involved with Antony and Cleopatra. Antony was a handsome, muscular man in his prime and the most powerful man in Rome at that time. Cleopatra was a clever, royal, 28-year-old who also had an affair with Antony's former boss, Julius Caesar. But looking beyond the concept of emotion, Egypt was the wealthiest nation in the eastern Mediterranean at that time and an essential part of the empire's grain supply. 
Rome had made and unmade Egyptian kings for nearly 100 years before the affair. Antony and Cleopatra both had immeasurable gains from the other, way beyond physical or emotional attraction, though they probably added some spice to things. At the end of the day, it was still about the power and about the money. One of the more nasty occurrences during this period of late Republican Roman history was the proscription. In its current usage, it was a decree of condemnation to death or banishment and can be used in a political context to refer to state-approved murder or banishment. An early instance of mass prescription occurred in 82 BCE when Lucius Cornelius Sulla took power. As dictator for the reconstitution of the republic, I love it, he was becoming dictator for like two years. The original term was only six months. He took it for two years to restore the republic. Interesting. Sulla proceeded to have the Senate draw up a list of those he considered enemies of the state and publish the list in the Roman Forum. Any man whose name appeared on the list was ipso facto stripped of his citizenship and excluded from all protection under the law. Reward money was given to any informer who provided information leading to the death of a prescribed man. And any person who killed a prescribed man was entitled to keep part of his estate. And here's the clever part. The remainder of a proscribed man's wealth went to the state. No person could inherit the money or property from prescribed men, nor could any woman married to a prescribed man remarry after his death. Many victims of prescription were decapitated and their heads were displayed on spears in the forum. But this is what is really important about prescription. It wasn't just a, a, a state-sanctioned way for Sulla to get rid of his enemies. Remember what happened not just to the enemies themselves, but to the wealth. Sulla used prescription to restore the depleted Roman treasury. Sulla was in the middle of a series of civil wars that occurred in late Republican Roman history. In his case, his obdurate enemy was Gaius Marius and Gaius Marius's successors, a whole group of people we won't even uh, mention here today. But understand that the problem is, is that when Rome fought foreign wars, there was plunder and in a really kind of twisted thing, they would conquer enemy peoples and sell them into slavery, and the general got to keep part of those proceeds. But in a civil war, there's no cities to plunder. There's no people to put into slavery because the enemy army are Romans themselves. So where is the money going to come from? Later on, we're going to talk about the high cost of war. But where is the money going to come from? Sulla used prescription to restore that depleted Roman treasury. And that treasury had been drained by costly civil wars in the preceding decade. And of course, hey, he used it to eliminate enemies of his reformed state and constitutions. But one group particularly came under scrutiny, and that was the plutocratic wealthy knights of the Ordo Equester. They were particularly hard hit. Given the procedure, a particularly sinister character in the public eye was the fact that many of the prescribed men, escorted from their homes at night by groups of men all named Lucius Cornelius, and these men who were escorted from their homes, they never appeared again. These men were all Sulla's freedmen, hence they would carry his name, but it almost seemed like Sulla was everywhere and nowhere. One of the things about Lucius Cornelius Sulla is, is he was one of, the, one of the masters of terror of the ancient world. 
This gave rise to a general fear of being taken from one home, one's home at night due to an outwardly seditious behavior. And later, Antony, who we've already touched on, and his fellow triumvir Octavian also used prescription for many of the same reasons as Sala. Yes, politics, but really the cash. Going back to Antony and Cleopatra, are people motivated or inspired by their significant others? I would think to some degree, but I'm not sure this is chicken and egg. Margaret Thatcher was one of the three towering figures of the 1980s politics, but quick, name her husband. What is Dudley, Earl of Leicester, against that of Elizabeth I? And here's an interesting little historical conundrum. Would Franklin D. Roosevelt have been different without Eleanor? Maybe. She was undoubtedly an essential part of his life and no doubt shaped some of his views. But the concept of the New Deal was born out of the progressive movement and Franklin's aristocratic belief in his ability to decide what was best for other people, he often decided even the pricing of things, was innate to his character. Franklin was that classic archetype usually found on the left who knew better than the average uh, people. The New Deal may have looked different without Eleanor, but there would have been a New Deal, unfortunately, in my opinion. This is not to say that significant others do not influence events, but rather they pale against the motivations produced by money. And in this, let me be clear. This is not necessarily about the pure acquisition of money, though that is certainly a crucial factor, but rather the allocation thereof, because that is real power. With his three homes, quote, one is a farm, everyone in Vermont is a farm, unquote, says Bernie Sanders, our budding socialist, our budding socialist with three homes. Sanders certainly enjoys the use of money on a personal level, but what really gets him up in the morning is the allocation piece of it. When Sanders rails against billionaires, there's a conscious belief about the inequities. Someone has $100 billion like Musk or Bezos, and someone has nothing but debts. Unfair. But most billionaires from Bloomberg to Gates to Zuckerberg to George Soros spend vast amounts of their fortunes doing what they think will cure these inequities. And not just in the United States, but globally. Yet, you rarely see Sanders praising these activities or decrying them or even commenting upon them. That is because just below the surface, he does not want them to allocate the money. Instead, he wishes to make the calls. In this case, it is about power, but the power that comes from controlling the purse strings. What is consistent throughout historical narratives is money. Even those contending for power need money to undergird their ambitions. In many cases, the two are the same thing. For example, in a previous podcast, I noted how Urban II, a medieval pope, exhorted Christians to conquer the Holy Land after Jerusalem had fallen to the Seljuk Turks. But clever Urban also noted that the land was that of milk and honey. It was not a coincidence that the first and most successful of the Crusades was that of second sons and lowly counts. Only in the second and third would established kings and emperors try to play a part. There was money to be had in the Holy Land. Not just money itself, but the land, which produces money. That's why it attracted so many of these second and third people. When when people like Richard the Lionhearted, King of England, or or King uh, Louis of France went to the Holy Land, they weren't intending to stay. And even if they managed to conquer some land, they'd probably just hand it over. But in that first crusade, those guys came, they stayed, and they ruled, and they got the money. 
Oh, and yeah, yeah, they, they got the holy places back from the infidels. There was that as well. That, you know, that religious thing. Now, religion counts. I will do an entire podcast on religion at a later time. It counts. It's super important. It fires people up. It gives them motivation. In some cases, it gives them hope. I would argue that in some regards, the most influential man of history, the man who not only founded a religion, he not only wrote all the key treatises of the religion from its inception, but also created an imperial regime that later spread the religion. That man was Muhammad. Jesus might have founded the largest religion in the world, but he had help from St. Paul and at his death, it was a tiny little sect within Judea. At Muhammad's death, he had pretty much converted the entire Arabian Peninsula and had put into effect a army that would later be taken by the caliphs that would conquer far and wide and spread his religion. And additionally, keep in mind that though Jesus was the center of the gospels, they were written by other people, but the Quran was, it, it, depending upon your religious perspective, was written, was written by Muhammad. So again, religion is very important. But in many cases, just on the side of the, histor- of the historical fame, just off center, one can see money through the prism of religion. Now, usually when a religion is founded, the zeal is real. People want to go out and talk about the word. But later, as religion becomes more organized, as religion becomes more mature, money starts to become more prominent. One of the biggest lessons that prudent leaders have learned, and dumb ones rarely do, is that one particular state-run activity, war, costs money, gobs of it. That would be the lesson now be, being that would be the lesson now being learned by one V. Putin. I have read about wars for over 35 years, but the money factor was not the point when I started reading history in my youth. The exploits of conquerors such as Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, and George S. Patton were, well, sort of thrilling. Fortunately, maturity and too many World War I books have brought the reality of war, pain and slaughter, home. Wars may be glorious for a few rulers or generals, rarely for the troops, never for those on the receiving end. One example of this is Genghis's conquest of the city of Bukhara. Quote, the Mongols set fire in an attempt to flush out the holdouts, but since most structures in the city were wooden, the soon uncontrollable fire reduced most of the city, including the famed library, to cinders. I always hate that when I read about libraries burning down. So the Mongols raised most of the stone structures which were left standing, unquote. And later still, I learned about money and war. Here's an excerpt from the Good Word News on the cost of the Russian warship, the Moskva, sunk just a few weeks ago by Ukraine. Quote, the sinking of Moskva, the Russian warship that Ukraine claims hit with a missile attack on Thursday, has cost the Russian military $750 million. Analysis from Forbes Ukraine shows the media reported that Ukraine had destroyed more than 5,000 pieces of Russian equipment since the war began in late February, but that the loss of Moskva was the most expensive. Forbes Ukraine calculated the approximate cost of the ship by comparing it to similar cruisers, which cost upwards of $750 million in 1995. It could easily cost another $700 million to replace the ship, but 
given the state of disrepair we've seen in the Russian military, we doubt they'll have the money to even replace it. Unquote. Compare this cost to a pride of the United States fleet, the USS Ronald Reagan. That ship came at a price of $4.5 billion. And I wonder what that ship would look like if a Chinese, I don't know, let's say a Chinese smart missile got through her defenses. According to a Congressional Budget Office report published in October of 2007, the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan could cost taxpayers a total of $2.4 trillion by 2017, including interest. And keep in mind, we beat the enemy forces in both places in the initial phases of those wars. And in addition to the invaluable lives of our troops, what would that cost have been had we had lost? And finally, there's the reality of all those excellent UNESCO sites. Now, do not get me wrong. I love them. I have been to Alhambra in Spain and Versailles in France. I would love to see the pyramids in the Taj Mahal. But let's also be clear. These were about the stupidest things ever done in terms of fiscal prudence and what was best for the subjects of the rulers who built them. Here is a laundry list. The pyramids, fourth dynasty collapse soon after construction. Taj Mahal, Mughals who ruled the united India collapsed one generation after building and the Mughal dynasty fell into anarchy. Versailles, Bourbon king killed 80 years after building. Alhambra, Nasri dynasty declined after building and conquered within 80 years. Now, this could be an oversimplification. For example, the construction of Angkor Wat did not lead directly to the fall of the Khmer in modern-day Cambodia. And I have always loved the line about the Bourbons. They learn nothing and forget nothing. And part of the Bourbon dynasty's bankruptcy was the war that very much helped 13 fledgling colonies throw off the British yoke. So I should not really be complaining about all of that, that French profligacy. But at best, the great UNESCO sites were overwrought community centers and at worst, vanity projects. I mean, the Taj itself is kind of a tomb to a dead wife. And in today's politics, it is definitely about the money. When Thomas Jefferson and James Madison died, both were deeply in debt. Harry S. Truman wrote his memoirs for $600,000 spread out over five years so that he would have some form of retirement income. Contrast that with today, where Barack Obama buys a $15 million mansion on Martha's Vineyards. Yes, it's an island, but what about the rising seas? Oh, never mind. And the Clintons? Oh my God. Estimates say that between 2000 and 2020, they earned a cool $100 million. Some of that built from their charity. I'm, I'm putting charity in quotes uh, in the written form of this podcast. Yet today, we are seeing the same phenomenon with members of Congress. Not confident that AOC has actually passed legislation, you know, her job, but she looked great in that Met Gala ballroom gown, except for the, the red thing saying tax the rich written on the back of the gown. Uh, I, I, irony is obviously lost on somebody of AOC's intellect in the fact that she's attending a gala that's surrounded by millionaires and she's saying tax the rich, but I digress. Between his stints in the Clinton administration and Obama's being Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel made sweet coin as a bank lobbyist for investment firm Wasserstein Perella. The GOP is in on it too. 
I watched George W. Bush for a 90-minute speech at a chemical association conference and later learned he earned $50,000 for that speech, plus all expenses paid, including his security. That is roughly about $555 per minute for that speech. Tick-tock, 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 ding, 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 ding. And intellectual luminaries like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn are already trying to cash in, and they're not even through the first two years of their first terms. They do not even have the, the decency to wait until they leave office before affixing their lips to the bloated body politic and sucking for all they are worth. And I think uh, listeners to this podcast know I'm not really a fan of activists left or even right I feel that whatever their purported cause, they and their organizations evolved into something grotesque. Part of this is the nature of their work. A for-profit company exists to create, well, profit, and in doing so, creates a common good. Activists start off working for the common good, but there's a simple difference. The work of a for-profit company really has no end except to continue to make a profit for the benefit of all stakeholders shareholders, employees, customers, and even the communities with which they are located. Now, an activist exists for a cause, but what happens when the cause is met? They cannot simply close up shop and return to, well, doing something productive. Instead, they need to find a new cause. The activists who wanted women in the workforce did not resign. They became activists for, let's say, gay marriage. When that came to pass in 2014 with the Oberfell ruling, then, well, let's look at trans rights. They redefine their goals, but mostly more and more narrowly and with more and more shrillness because the more activists there are, the more they need to get their voice out to get that all-important donation and government grant. The louder they are, the more squeaky wheel they get the oil. Now, let's again look at that activist who went from feminism to gay rights to trans rights. This example above went from representing 50% of the population to around 10 to 7% of the population to less than 1% of the population. And yet, what is really interesting is this activists have become more and more aggressive corresponding to the less and less representatives they actually are doing. In 2022, in 2022, we have a black VP and 22% of the Supreme Court is now black. African Americans have access to wealth and power undreamed of by their forebears 70 years ago. I, in a previous podcast, talked about whenever you look at a prominent place, whether it be a sports figure, whether it be, well, Barack Obama and that $15 million uh, mansion, he's probably the most popular politician in the country today. Who's the top-earning movie star? Who is the top-earning talk show host? All of these things now mean that African Americans have access to wealth and power, undreamed of, as I stated before. And by the way, that is a good thing. But here's what's interesting. Do all of those civil rights organizations simply dissolve? Nope, they find something else. Somehow the civil rights movement has evolved from Medgar Evers and M.O.K. Jr. to Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, all the way to BLM co-founder Patrice Cullors. Evers and Martin Luther King obviously were murdered 
And they were murdered at a time when at that moment they were not wealthy men. Jesse Jackson is worth over $15 million. Al Sharpton flies on private jets and wears $5,000 suits. Colors lives in a $5 million mansion. Imbram X. Kendi got $10 million, $10 million from the founder of Twitter. Part of me wants to say, bravo, we are all capitalists now, yay. But this crowd does not make iPhones or oil. They make acrimony, angst, and hatred. And without these emotions, they would not cash those million-dollar checks. Today's politics is too much show me the anger, then show me the money. Thank you for listening to this latest Conservative Historian podcast. Look for all of our podcasts up and down our Buzzsprout site. We have over 115 of them right now. Thanks for listening.